Good evening. Good evening. And happy Easter. Happy Easter. Over this uh, last week, we've been thinking about the Easter story, the betrayal, arrest, crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus 2,000 years ago. But we've been looking at it in relation to the larger biblical story and noticing how key moments in the story of the Bible are set in gardens. So on Maundy Thursday, if you were here at our Closer event, we focused on Garden One, the Eden Garden, where God creates all things good, but sin enters the world and wreaks havoc. And then Garden Two, Gethsemane, the garden where Jesus is arrested and taken to the cross. And today we're going to focus a bit more on Garden Three and Four. Garden Three is the garden in which Jesus is buried, but he's said to have risen from the dead. And Garden Four is the future garden, this garden-like city where God promises one day to wipe every tear from our eyes and deal completely with all that went wrong in the first garden. The setting in gardens is, I think, uh, beautiful, drawing our attention to this ongoing story. Each garden echoes the other. It went wrong in the Eden Garden, and all these subsequent gardens are all about that, over and over, God putting right what has gone wrong. And so this has been our framework uh, for sort of coming towards this Easter, but I want to zoom in today to Garden 3 this evening. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to read um, John's report in chapter 20, but it will come up on the screen as well. John 20, verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. And they asked a woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them, that he had said these things to her. So the backdrop uh, to that story is that Jesus had been killed, crucified by the Romans on the Friday, buried, and then this is the Sunday morning. And so this is what Christians around the world believe and celebrate today, that Jesus rose from the dead. And uh, I mean, maybe you're here tonight and you just think that sounds so weird. You know, to our modern Western ears, there's so much about what we just read in that passage that sounds weird, right? So much. Some just dismiss it as a fairy tale. Others see it as functioning more like a metaphor, like an, you know, an idea that's encouraging and powerful, but not really true in any sense of like really happening. Like maybe how you know, we find a Disney film quite emotionally affecting. Like anyone seen Up? Yeah. Moving, right? Or The Lion King? It's kind of hard to come away from those things feeling like it's been anything but kind of sort of therapeutically cathartic in some way, right? Or this is us, anyone, anyone? This is us, man. Somewhere between cathartic and just like entirely distressing at times, I think. Um, just 
be warned if you've not seen it. So things don't have to be real to have an impact, do they? I read a French theologian who um, argued exactly this, that whether Jesus rose, whether that actually happened or not, doesn't really matter. It's the fact that we have the story that's powerful, right? Stories can be powerful whether they've happened or not. But the problem with that is that the the actual reports we have, the documents we have from, from the first century, they do actually claim it happened. In fact, uh, Paul, one of the early Christians, he argues this, if Jesus wasn't raised, then our faith is just futile. You know, if if it didn't happen, he says, we just should just give up. It's it's all pointless. It's St. Paul, that is, who said that. He's inviting us to kind of kick against the tires and check it out. And the truth is that Christians around the world, those of us, many of us in this room, actually really genuinely believe that that this actually did happen. Maybe you're here today and you just come with a friend and you, you know, you, you sort of just interested in all this stuff. It might surprise you. They, your friend might well believe that too. And that might be a shock to you. Isn't it? I mean, it's bonkers in a lot of ways, isn't it? I believe it. I believe it. And it sounds bonkers to me as well. Like I've been brought up in the same education system as most of us here will have been watching the same TV shows, exposed to the same science curriculum that probably most of us here were as well. If you're here today and you think it sounds bizarre and out there, if you're struggling to accept that people really genuinely believe that he rose from the dead, then I'm kind of with you. Honestly, I think it is a bit out there. People don't just rise from the dead. Dead people don't normally come back to life. And actually, most Christians actually still think that. Um, It's kind of a bit weird for all of us. But it's interesting. And if you get the chance to explore it, you should, because it's not as easy to dismiss as you might think. I mean, sort of historically. Actually, by any normally used standard of historical investigation, the most tenable explanation is that Jesus did rise from the dead. Most historians looking at it agree with that. They might just decide that, well, that's impossible, and so they look for a different explanation. But that really has more to do with worldview than it does history. So let me just give you a few of the issues. You know, the text we read actually highlights a number of, number of them in the Bible there. And actually, just as an aside, remember the Bible, the, the text we're reading from, didn't just kind of magically fall from the sky. It's not a magic book. It's actually lots of different types of ancient literature. The Gospels, where we read that story, and other stories of the resurrection, actually collations of people's testimony to things they saw and heard around 30 years after they happened. And the authors writing this, they weren't, they weren't writing the Bible, they were simply making a record. It wasn't until about 300 years later that the Bible was collated. So the authors didn't think, oh, I'm writing a religious book. Or, or they didn't think, this is something some people are going to talk about 2,000 years later in a room like this. They were just writing a report saying, I think this is what we saw. So we have these reports about Jesus, his life, his death, and also this claim that he rose from the dead. And it's trickier to dismiss than you think. So one of the issues with dismissing it, we see in verses 16 to 18 of what we just read, that Mary sees Jesus alive. And she's not the only one. If you listen to uh, St. Paul, the Apostle Paul, he writes this. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that was Peter, to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. It's like he's saying, you go and check it out. You can ask these people about it. They're still alive. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So what do we do with this? This and other accounts of people just saying, oh, we saw Jesus alive. Could they all be lying? Well, there's a lot of people who said they saw him alive after his death. Paul mentions 500 that saw him on one occasion. One episode of any soap you could pick on TV will be enough to show you that it's incredibly difficult to maintain a lie, even amongst a few people, right? Let alone 500. Could you imagine trying to make sure that 500 people had their stories aligned? And what's more, many of those eyewitnesses who said they saw Jesus, they died for their belief that Jesus was alive, and almost all of them experienced persecution. And this is actually really important, because would they, would they, could they have been willing to die for something knowing that it was just made up? I mean, some of them, it's awful. Some of them were fed to lions, set on fire, crucified upside down for something they knew to be a lie, all of them. And then there's, if it is a lie, it's just a weird one. Right? For example, the, uh, the first eyewitnesses are women. In fact, the very first is Mary Magdalene. And in the first century, a woman's testimony wasn't even admissible in court. If this was all just a fabrication, then the authors would never, ever have put a woman as the first witness. It just invalidated it. And what's even more embarrassing is that Mary Magdalene, known for being a woman of the street, the first witness to the resurrection of Jesus, in this very same book, is said to have been demonically oppressed by seven demons, but healed by Jesus. She's the first witness. You know, if you or I were concocting a lie, what would we do? We'd write into it, into it some sort of upstanding, respectable member of society who'd add validity to our story, right? Not too much to draw attention, but never someone who would detract from it. I mean, can you imagine? Luke's like researching for his gospel, and he's asking the disciples, he's like taking notes, like, this, is, this is amazing, it's amazing. So who saw him first? You know, just taking notes, and, uh, and his face drops as they tell him, and he's like, Mary, really? Are you kidding me? Mary, crazy Mary, demon-possessed Mary, she's the first. The only reason the gospel writers would ever, in a million years, place Mary Magdalene as the first witnesses, that they were just awkwardly, inconveniently, frustrated, probably, reporting just what happened. With all the weaknesses and inconveniences of a true story, it just lacks the streamlined consistency of a lie. So were they all lying about it? Well, if they weren't lying, then perhaps it was just a mistake. Perhaps they all just honestly thought they'd seen something, like a hallucination. They, they just all made the same mistake at the same time. And if there were just a few isolated reports, then maybe. But there are at least 12 recorded, with over 500 at one point. And we know from experts that hallucinations originate inside the psyche of the individual. 
They're not external things that others can see, certainly not 500 at one time. In fact, there's no phenomena that we know of today that can account for that sort of thing. So the reports that people said they'd seen Jesus are a bit of an issue. And the tomb being empty is another one. If you look at verses 11 to 13 of what we read, Mary looks into the tomb. She can't see Jesus' body. And she says, they've taken my Lord away. So what do we do with that? And other reports similar. Some today say perhaps it wasn't actually empty. Perhaps, you know, it wasn't empty at all. But if that was true, the Jewish leaders and the Romans wanting to quash this new movement would have just gone and brought the body out, right? But they didn't because they couldn't. Some suggest instead that perhaps it was, it was empty, but only because Jesus never really died. It's called the, the swoon theory, if you're interested, the swoon theory. That he just fainted, but he was okay. The problem with that is the Romans, who clearly knew how to kill people. He'd been flogged brutally with a whip with metal spikes. He'd been beaten, a crown of thorns placed on his head, nails through his hands, his wrists and his ankles, hung upon a cross, and a spear thrust into his heart. Rome were well practiced in the art of killing. Some say, you know, maybe it was empty because he was never really buried in the first place. But again, not even the Jewish leaders argued that. They instead argued that the body was buried, but was then stolen by his disciples who lied about it. But we're back again to the issue of it being a lie. Would almost all of them face torture and death knowing it was just a hoax? So people said they saw Jesus. It's a little bit of an issue. The tomb being empty is problematic. But I think there's an even bigger issue when it comes to dismissing this. And uh, I don't know whether you've seen this image. It's the, the picture is of an ichthus fish. And the symbol was used as an identity marker in the early church. In fact, when Christians would meet one another, when one Christian met another, in order to make sure that they were both Christians, one would bend down and draw half the fish in the sand in the dirt, and the other would complete it, sort of proving they were both members of the church. And they needed to do this because being a follower of Jesus was a hugely dangerous decision. As I said, Christians were fed to lions. There's an account of them being used as human torches in Emperor Nero's even, evening garden parties, coated with tar and then set alight. And yet, the church exploded into life. Within five weeks of, the East, of Easter, over 10,000 Jews had abandoned and, rest and restructured age-old traditions. They changed the Sabbath day from a Saturday to a Sunday because they said that was when Jesus had risen. They abandoned the temple and the sacrificial system, the center of their culture and faith, saying Jesus had fulfilled it. And they even started to affirm Jesus as God. The change it was just astonishingly dramatic. Everyone agrees it was astonishing. They were expelled from the Jewish community. Their lives were in danger. See, what they gladly affirmed and proclaimed just five weeks earlier, they themselves would have denounced as heresy. Five weeks earlier, they would have been shocked and horrified and would have stoned people for things that five weeks later, they started saying and were believing and doing. How do we account for that? That is bizarre. Something significant must have happened. And we see this 
over and over. Peter, for example, who fearfully disowns Jesus before his death, becomes the bold leader of the church, and is eventually crucified upside down for his belief in the resurrection. Something significant must have happened between Friday and Sunday. Or the apostles who all fled in fear when Jesus was arrested become the foremost voices for the resurrection in face of strong opposition, persecution, and death. Something significant must have happened between Friday and Sunday. Or James, the brother of Jesus, who didn't believe in him and even mocked him in his life, becomes a follower and leader and martyr in the early church. Something significant must have happened. The Apostle Paul uh, was a violent persecutor of the church, overseeing the death and imprisonment of Christians all over, and suddenly he becomes the foremost evangelist for the resurrection. He goes from, being persecu- he goes from persecuting to being persecuted, beaten and imprisoned and eventually killed. Something, something significant must have happened, right? Could it be that a defeated, dead failed saviour could inspire all of this? You know, that merely a day labourer turned rabbi and teacher who was rejected by his own people, deserted by his friends and rejected by the empire, killed by the empire, could it be that someone like that could produce the most influential movement the world has ever seen? A movement that outlived the Roman Empire. It's, it's an issue. How do we account for those things? Cambridge New Testament professor C.F.D. Moore writes this, the emergence of the church rips a great hole in history, the size and shape of the resurrection. It's harder to dismiss than you think. Something unusual, something unique, something remarkable really must have happened. If not resurrection, then something similarly remarkable and unique. You know, no smoke without fire, as the saying goes, something unusual and amazing happened. So I agree that coming back from the dead is is strange and unusual, but that is the territory that we find ourselves in anyway. Something strange and unusual. And it is what is claimed in these reports. I'd encourage you, Christian or not, follow Jesus or not, if you haven't, explore this stuff. Kick against the tires. Check it out. Like the investigative journalist uh, Lee Strobel did exactly that. He begins investigating the resurrection in order to disprove it. His wife has started to get interested in Christianity and he doesn't like it. And so he, he decides, you know, I'll just, I'll look into this. I'll disprove it. And so um, over the course of many interviews and study and research, he begins sort of pouring over this stuff and ends up actually becoming a follower of Jesus. It's really worth looking into. Honestly, I'd be surprised if that was the thing that clinched it for you. I'm keenly and painfully aware that like a 10-minute summary on Easter Day evening of the evidence for the resurrection is unlikely to swing anything for anyone in any dramatic way. Like maybe it'll pique your interest a little bit, but it's too short, it's too one-sided, and to be honest, for most of us, faith just doesn't purely work that way anyway. I wonder if you have seen this picture. It's a a famous painting by the 15th century Italian Renaissance painter Filippino Lippi. 
And the picture shows the Virgin Mary cradling the infant Jesus on her knee with saints at prayer in the foreground. And uh, the portrait was on display in London's National Gallery. It had been frequently decried by art critics. Lippi's skill with colour and composition was impeccable, but his proportions here seem strangely skewed. The hills in the background appeared to almost curve out over the figures in the forefront. The two saints on either side of Mary sort of kneeling at improbable angles, and the Virgin Mother bizarrely just seems to be staring at something on the ground between them all. And so it had been widely criticised by art critics again and again and again. And one day, the art critic Robert Cummings, he visits the gallery, and he stands there staring at the painting, musing over the problem with kind of irritation, looking at it, acknowledging this, this, what's wrong with this painting. But as he does so, frustrated by the inexplicable errors, he has this moment of insight. See, Lippi's painting had never been intended to hang in a gallery. It had been commissioned to stand before petitioners in a church, at the altar, where people come to worship, to receive communion, to weep, to pray, to kneel. And so self-consciously, this dignified critic takes a knee in the public gallery and he sees what art critics have missed for generations, that from this new vantage point, he gazes up at a perfectly proportioned piece. You see, the resurrection of Jesus similarly wasn't meant to be the subject of dispassionate evaluation or cold critique from a safe distance. It wasn't meant to be the subject of academic debate or ivory tower scholarly critique. You know, it's super-duper important that it stands up under that sort of rigorous questioning. If it didn't, like Paul says, we should just give up. But it was never meant for that. Mary's encounter that we've read about this evening, it's not academic. It's not removed. It's not the dispassionate evaluation of evidence. What she has is an encounter right in the midst of her brokenness and sorrow right in the middle of her actual life. It's not clinical, it's personal. It's relational, and it changes her life forever. And I wonder today whether you might be willing just to look from another angle, just to be curious, to come with your mind, but also with your heart, open to even the possibility that there might be something in this. The picture makes a lot more sense from that angle. It's designed to be experienced, not just critiqued. You see, if the claims about Jesus are true, which is important, but if they are, then we should expect not just history books about it. We should expect to see evidence of it right now, right? All over the place. And it's, why, it's one of the reasons why people's stories are so important. So, for example, St. Augustine, the most famous theologian in church history, a thinker for sure, he tells about meeting Jesus. And he was far from a saint at that point. He was a womanizer and a drunk. His life was a mess. But it was an encounter with Jesus that changed his life. He writes about a time he picked up the Bible 
And he says this, for instantly, as the sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something light, the light of full certainty, and the gloom of doubt vanished away. There was infused in my heart something light. And then later, he famously says of Jesus, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You see, he's not talking about detached logic and argument, although he spends much of his life using those and writing with those same skills. He's talking about an experience of Jesus. Or John Newton, who famously penned the words for Amazing Grace and worked, um, uh, he began his life as a slave trader and a drunk. In his own words, he says this, I sinned with a high hand, he later wrote, and, it, and I made it my study to tempt and seduce others, he says of himself. But it was an encounter with Jesus that changed his life. He writes this, Whoever has tasted of the love of Christ and has known by his own experience the need and the worth of redemption is enabled, constrained to love his fellow creatures. You see, he's talking about an experience of Jesus that changed his whole life. Or Blaise Pascal, um, the famous 17th century French scientist, he was the inventor of the first calculator, the developer of the mathematical theory of probability, you know, a man of significant intellect. When he died in 1662, a servant found a small piece of parchment sewn into his cloak with these words, just on this cloak next to his chest, with these words, Monday, November 23rd, 1654, half past 10 until half past 12, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of philosophers, nor of the scholars, certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, joy, 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 tears of joy, Jesus Christ. Pascal kept that hidden close to his heart until his death. For eight years, he took care to sew and unsew it every time he changed his coat. He's talking about an experience of Jesus. Or the Oxford professor and author C.S. Lewis, for example, he, he writes this. After wrestling with all this stuff rationally, he writes this. You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen, that's in Oxford, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second for my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I love that. And he's a thinker. He goes on to write many books, apologetics for faith, reasons for faith, but here he's talking about an experience of Jesus. Or maybe, you know, a precious lady in my dad's church um, a few years ago, Trudy, who'd lived under life-altering depression for over a decade, faithfully coming to church, and then on one random Sunday, one random Sunday evening, whilst in prayer, she experiences the presence of God, and she feels peace. She goes home, she goes to bed, and the next morning, she says, for the first time in 10 years, there's no mental fog, there's no cloud of depression, and then she never experiences it again. If you ask her, she would say, 
It was because of Jesus. Or um, my brother, uh, a while ago, walking through a park, he's, he's, a, he's a Christian, and he was walking along, and he felt like, um, he felt like God spoke to him um, and said that this, this guy he'd seen, said, his, name's, I think his name's Daniel, and he's, um, he's, he's, his life is in danger. And so <clears throat> my brother has this sense like that that's what God said to him, and he's, so he walks over a bit, sort of nervously, a bit sheepish, a bit embarrassed, and he walks up to this guy, and he says, look, I'm really sorry, this is a bit weird, um, but um, I'm a Christian, and I felt like God wanted, wanted me to come and pray for you. Uh, is, is there any chance your name's Daniel? And the guy says, no. <laughs> and my brother's like, ah, that's... Okay, uh, so he's, he's like, well, I'm in, I'm in it now. So he says, oh, he says, sorry, I just thought that's, that's what, I must have got that wrong, but I had a sense that you might be in danger and could I pray for you? And, and, the guy, and the guy says, how do you know that? And my brother's sort of taken back, he's like, uh, I, I, what do you mean? And then the guy says this, my name is Daniel. I just, I didn't want to tell you because people are after me and I'm scared. And he said, I've actually come here to end it, to take my life. And so my brother says, like, he, you know, he, he, he talks to him about Jesus. He says, can I pray for you? He prays for him. And this guy gives his life to Jesus there on the bench in the park. You see, it's, more, it's about more than just academic debate. It's more, about more than evidence. Not less, but always more. You know, in my own life, I would struggle to tell you my story without referring time after time after time to Jesus in the highs and the lows, not just academic, not just historical, as important as that is, but present and alive now, active now. Hundreds of people, thousands of people in this church would have a similar testimony. Billions of Christians around the world would have a similar testimony You see, there is a compelling historical argument, but to sit purely at a dispassionate distance to evaluate faith is like looking at the picture from the wrong angle. Those things are important, but can I encourage you today, try this angle. The angle from which you're open to experience something of the reality of these claims. I guess it's an invitation to be curious to come with your heart as well as your head. And like Robert Cummings, you know, kneeling before that painting, it may require some humility, you know, an openness to see something that perhaps you hadn't seen before. Or perhaps you've dismissed before. It may may even require courage to engage with something that feels unfamiliar or maybe even something that you have a complicated history with, that perhaps it's easier just not even to think about. But when we pray in just a moment, can I encourage you, to whatever extent you're willing and able, just to be open. You see, the Easter story was never meant for the art gallery or the critic's eye, but for changing the world. It's about forgiveness and restoration, about wiping of tears, about undoing of the brokenness in the world and the brokenness in our own hearts and lives too. 
It's about hope. And if you can hear it, it's really, really, really good news. Taste and see that God is good, one author says. Taste and see. You know, by all means, kick against the tires. Check it out. Evaluate, examine. But just don't forget in the midst of it, it's about so much more than that as well.